Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the UCL Minds Lunch Hour Lecture. We're so pleased to have you all with us today. My name is Dr. Ramona Weil. I'm a neurologist and neuroscientist at the UCL Dementia Research Centre, and I work on Parkinson's dementia. I'm delighted to introduce you to Dr. Angelica Zarkali. She is a specialist registrar in neurology who is doing a PhD in our group, and she is co-supervised by Professor Geraint Rees. She trained as a neurologist at University College London Hospital and also East Kent and St George's Hospital. And then she joined the Dementia Research Centre at UCL to do her PhD with us. She is funded by an Alzheimer's Research UK fellowship. The overall aim of her research is to shed light on visual hallucinations in Parkinson's disease. And she does this using brain imaging and visual tasks and has taught herself high level coding in Python to be able to do this. Today, she will present some of her recent work understanding Parkinson's hallucinations. She will show how thinking about the brain as a network can help us understand how hallucinations happen in Parkinson's disease, and ultimately, how this can point to future treatments. You'll be able to ask questions after the talk, and we'll be taking questions via Slido. Information to join the Slido are in the event information you received, but in case you didn't receive this, you can go to slide.do and enter the code LHL2. So now, I'm delighted to hand you over to Dr. Angelica Zarkali to talk about Parkinson's hallucinations. So thank you for the kind introduction, Ramona. So it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I'm Angelica, and I'm going to talk to you about how um, viewing the brain as a network can help us understand hallucinations in Parkinson's disease. So hopefully you can all see my slides now. Um, so Parkinson's disease, as said, um, is the second commonest neurodegenerative disorder, and it affects more than 2 million people worldwide. And since it was first described by James Parkinson's in 1817, it was thought as a disorder affecting movements with a classical triad of tremor, stiffness and slowness of movement. And even now, when people think about Parkinson's, mostly they think about these motor symptoms. But it has become more and more clear that actually Parkinson's disease also causes several non-motor symptoms, which are at least as common and sometimes even more distressing for people who are affected. And of those non-motor symptoms, one of the most characteristic and one of the most distressing for people with Parkinson's is problems with vision and specifically visual hallucinations. And visual hallucinations in Parkinson's are very varied. They can range from what we call minor hallucinations, so, such as illusions or misperceiving an object for something else. So for example, you can see here some images of uh, towels that may look like dogs or rather dogs that may look like towels. But you should, most of you, um, will probably be able to quickly discern between the two, which is the dog and which is the towel. This may be more difficult for people with Parkinson's disease, and they may even misperceive such a towel or, for example, a pile of clothes on the floor uh, for a dog or a small animal. They also may experience a very specific type of hallucination, which is seeing faces um, in objects where there are no faces. And this is called pareidolia, and it happens to all of us to some extent. So for example, you may be able to see the face of a fan elephant in this rock formation. But in people with Parkinson's disease, it happens much more, and they may even perceive uh, faces, even if the object itself doesn't really look like a face. For example, these flowers were perceived consistently as staring faces by 74-year-old uh, patient with Parkinson's disease. Another common minor hallucination is passage hallucinations, where um, you can see a shadow moving in the periphery of your vision. 
hallucinations in Parkinson's can also be very complex and detailed and vivid and lifelike scenes. And I really like this painting from Charles Doyle, who was a Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's father and spent his final years in an asylum for the mentally insane in Scotland. And we don't know whether he had Parkinson's or not, but I think it's a really good visual representation of the complex hallucinations that people with Parkinson's described. And I have put some quotes here from people who about their experiences. And you can see them clearly illustrated in the figure. There are some people kind of coming into the house at night and hiding in the shadows, um, furniture or maybe the plants in the balcony turn into little children or musicians or little animals and dogs running around the floor. And kind of just by seeing this picture or this painting, you can imagine how these experiences might sometimes be distressing or frightening. And in addition, hallucinations are, are very common in Parkinson's. Up to 70% of people um, will experience them. And as well as causing distress and being potentially frightful, they um, are associated with worse outcomes. So they're associated with worse quality of life, higher carer burden, the development of subsequent dementia, and are the single best predictor for nursing home placement. So hallucinations do matter for people with Parkinson's disease. But despite this impact that they have for people in the families, we don't yet fully understand how they're produced in the brain and uh, treatments are limited. And when we're trying to understand um, how any symptom, such as visual hallucinations, for example, is produced in the brain, a very common approach is taking a group of people who have that symptom and comparing their brains, for example, using brain imaging, to the brains of people who don't have that symptom. So, for example, if we have these three patients here um, and they um, all have a certain symptom, say tremor, some, something, a symptom, and patient one has thinner brain, um, uh, or brain atrophy or the brain is thinner here in this area, patient two has thinner brain area here and patient three, ha uh, three has um, some uh, brain thinning in this area here. If we overlap all these areas, we can see that they kind of nicely match together. Um, and the center area here, we can assume that damage in this area may be significant or may be core in producing this uh, specific symptom. But when people try to do the same um, in visual hallucinations in Parkinson's disease, they found a whole uh, different brain regions here highlighted with the red um, that don't really overlap nicely. They're all over the place. So you have some on the back, some on the front, some deep within the brain, some in the memory centers. So they don't overlap. They're very spatially and functionally distinct. So how do, what do we do then? So we know that brain regions are actually not independent of each other. They are connected. And even from the beginning of the 20th century, as you can see, like very beautifully illustrated by Kajal here, we know that within a brain region, and this is an example of the cerebellum, which is in the back of the brain, we know that different cells are actually connected through axons or the long protrusions of neurons. And this interweaving of different neurons together happens all throughout the, the brain. And between regions as well. So different brain regions are similarly physically connected through axons. Brain regions are also connected through the blood circulation in the brain. They receive nutrients and chemicals through a common bloodstream. And unsurprisingly, since um, brain regions are physically connected, they influence each other's function and activation patterns. So here you can see a video of neurons in the cell culture. And when the light becomes brighter, there is a neuron being activated or firing an electrical signal. 
And you can clearly see that this activation pattern, um, this activation rather happens in patterns with neurons that are close together, often firing together, but also pockets of neurons that are actually quite distinct further apart spatially, also firing together. So different brain regions are physically and functionally connected. And this allows us to examine the brain as a network rather than as a collection of distinct regions. And this could provide um, different kinds of insights into the brain, both in health and in the presence of disease. So here, I'm going to focus on four different experiments using this network-based view of the brain to try and better understand Parkinson's disease hallucinations. First, I will talk to you about understanding different influences during visual perception and how imbalancing those influences may lead to hallucinations. Then I will talk to you about changes in brain wiring that we see in relation to Parkinson's hallucinations, as well as changes in large-scale brain uh, networks. And finally, I will talk to you about how we can link these brain changes with um, uh, genetic information and better understand the underlying biological processes and cell types that may be implicated. So first, talking about influences in visual perception and how this change in Parkinson's. Well, we know now that vision is actually affected in Parkinson's disease. People with Parkinson's have trouble um, copying these uh, intersecting pentagons compared to people who don't have Parkinson's. They also show changes in contrast sensitivity, so the ability in color vision, the ability to discern between different changes uh, of color shades. And they also show diff difficulties in contrast sensitivity. So people with Parkinson's may struggle to read the bottom lines of this chart where the contrast between the letters and the background is um, less prominent. And all those visual deficits have been shown to be associated with worse outcomes as well in people with Parkinson's. And more recently, work from several groups, including um, our group here at UCL, has shown that there is also thinning in the back of the eyes in people with uh, Parkinson's disease in a specific layer, actually. And this, again, is correlated with uh, worse outcomes, including uh, the development of dementia. But even when looking at the most simple visual tests, so reading lines from a chart um, like this one, a test that probably most of you will have had, people with Parkinson's disease perform worse than others in their age group who don't have Parkinson's. And there is evidence as well that these changes may happen even before motor symptoms develop. So Hannah and colleagues followed a very large sample of more than 6 million people in South Korea um, and tried to figure out risk factors that were associated with subsequent development of Parkinson's and found that in people who went on to develop uh, Parkinson's, they had um, even years before performed worse in these simple visual tests than people who didn't develop Parkinson's. So the visual system in Parkinson's disease is affected uh, even as early as the back of the eyes, the retina. But these visual changes alone do not really explain why some people with Parkinson's develop these very vivid, complex visual hallucinations. And that is because vision is not just a passive process where the brain just takes the signal um, traveling from our eyes and accepts it. Um, it is a process where our brain is an active contributor and that influences what is perceived at the end. So you might remember the dress, which was quite popular in the incident a few years ago. And the same image of the dress here was perceived as blue and black from some people, um, assuming a light background, but was perceived as white and gold by other people, assuming a dark background. So the same image, the same visual information was perceived in two very different ways. And another really good example of how previous experiences influences the way we perceive visual information is the picture of this brick wall. So I just wanted to take a moment here and kind of look at this picture carefully and think whether you can see any objects within this photograph or whether it's just a brick wall. 
some of you may be able to see an object. Oops, I gave it away. But some of you may just be able to see a brick wall. But if I now show you, highlight you the object, so the cigar right in the middle of the, of the picture, and now show you the same picture again, it is now really easy to perceive it. So your previous experience actually influences what you visually perceive. And once you can see it, you can't unsee it. So vision is an active process. And we can actually think of two different competing influences on vision. There is a bottom-up influence, which is with the green here, where uh, which consists from the visual information, so the sensory evidence that our eyes um, uh, send to our brain. And then there is a top-down influence, which is with the blue, which is our prior knowledge, um, our memories, goals, expectation, uh, context, etc. And both the sensory evidence and our prior knowledge are both taken into account when we perceive a visual scene, such as the painting here. And I already told you that uh, vision is affected in Parkinson's disease, particularly these bottom-up influences. So people with Parkinson's show these changes in those simple visual tests, and they accumulate these sensory evidence um, less well than people without Parkinson's. But what we were really interested in finding out is whether there is also change in these top-down influences, whether there is a change in prior knowledge. And to find that out, we used these two-tone images, which are kind of like black and white patches. So again, um, just take a few moments here uh, to view this image and ask yourself, can you see a person in this image? So some of you, may think that yes there is a person here some of you may think that no there isn't a person here if i now show you the color template from which the previous image was generated and i show you the two-tone image again it should now be clear that there is a person here in this image and now that I've given you this prior knowledge, you can maybe even start to um, perceive details, so like the baby's head or its arm or the water coming down. And like the cigar in the brick wall, once you th see this, you cannot unsee it. So what we did is we invited 57 people to come and take part in a study uh, so we can formally test the sync Parkinson's hallucinations and we collected data regarding their movement symptoms whether they had hallucinations or not how severe these hallucinations were we also performed several memory and visual tests to make sure that people with and without hallucinations did not differ in terms of age in terms of their cognition uh, vision disease severity or medications that they were taking and we showed people these two-tone images, some like the one on the top had a person there and some like the one on the bottom didn't. Um, and then we asked them whether they could see a person in the image or not, like I did with you. So then we showed them the template colored images from which the previous images were produced. And then we showed them the two-tone images again. And we measure how good the performance performance was before and after they had received prior knowledge. So in this way, we kept actually the sensory evidence the same. So the images that people saw in the before and after block were the same exactly, but the only thing that had changed is that they had received prior knowledge. So we could quantify the impact that this prior knowledge had. And what we found was, as expected, everyone's performance improved after receiving prior knowledge, so after viewing the colored images, but people who had hallucinations improved more than those who didn't. So here we have plotted uh, test performance um, and um, in the before and the after block, uh, in orange with people with visual hallucinations and green for people who didn't have hallucinations. And you can clearly see that even though people with hallucinations were worse um, to begin with, they actually improved much more 
more. In fact, they improved twice as much as those without hallucinations. And this improvement in performance after they had received prior knowledge was correlated with the severity of their hallucinations. So people with a more severe hallucinations um, improved the more, more after receiving prior knowledge. And this implies that people with Parkinson's and visual hallucinations rely on their prior knowledge more when viewing um, an ambiguous um, uh, image than people without hallucinations do, because giving them prior knowledge in this instance had a significantly bigger effect in hallucinators than uh, non-hallucinators. And this overweighting, this over-reliance on prior knowledge was associated with hallucination severity. So people with Parkinson's and visual hallucinations um, show an imbalance in these competing influences in vision. But why does this happen? What changes in the brain could lead to this? Well, since these influences in um, uh, a perception require uh, different brain regions to communicate to each other, we wanted to first look at the brain wiring, the physical connections between regions, and whether these actually show any changes in people with Parkinson's and hallucinations. And broadly speaking, the brain consists of gray matter, the outer cell here um, uh, uh, around the brain, and white matter, which is in the middle, and it's the accents, the connections between the different brain regions. And as you can see in this very lovely illustration from the early 20th century, white matter consists of different tracts. So here with red, we have a specific tract highlighted, the cingulum, and it, they connect very um, spatially um, distinct regions, regions that are quite far away from each other, like this one here, and, and here in the back of the brain, and this one here. But whilst in the 1900s we could only see these changes by um, slicing the brains of people after they had passed away, we can now actually visualize the white matter um, in life using a type of MRI called diffusion-weighted imaging. And here is an example where you can see um, in vivo all the white matter tracks and I have actually colored them according to their direction. So whether they, the direction that they connect um, uh, regions or move information. And for example, with the red color are tracts um, that uh, connect uh, regions between hemispheres, so from left to right. So we use this technique, uh, diffusion weighted imaging, to assess the integrity of the white matter in people with Parkinson's with and without hallucinations. And if you think, again, of what a normal white matter track would look like, like the cingulum here with red. The individual red lines represent different fibers. And a normal fiber here on the top, if we cut it um, and look at it under the microscope, should look nice and thick and it would have uh, different types of, uh, many different accents inside. Um, so these are individual accents with green. Um, and if it is not healthy, this could happen in three different ways. So it could become less dense, so it would have reduced fiber density. That means that it would have the same diameter, the same cross-section, but there would be less number of accents inside. It could become thinner, so reduced fiber cross-section, um, so smaller diameter, but the same number of accents inside. Or it could become both thinner and less dense, and that's, um, in that instance, it would have reduced fiber density and cross-section. So what we did is we compared these three metrics in people with Parkinson's with and without hallucinations. And 140 people participated in this study. And again, we examined them clinically in terms of the Parkinson's. We did cognitive and visual tests to make sure that people um, with and without hallucinations did not differ in how severe the Parkinson's was or in terms of age or cognition. And we collected data on the frequency and severity of hallucinations. And we also performed uh, brain imaging, including diffusion-weighted imaging, that allowed us to examine these three metrics um, in terms of white matter. 
And what we found was that there were white matter tracts in people with hallucinations where the fibers were thinner. They had reduced fiber cross-section compared to people without hallucinations. So here is an MRI image of the same brain's white matter cut in three different ways, so three different planes. And um, I have just um, shown you a diagram here on the top to kind of orientate yourselves. And I have colored... Um, of how much thinner that the tracks that were significantly affected that they were thinner in people with hallucinations and these are colored accordingly to how much thinner they were for from in people with parkinson's compared to people who didn't have uh, hallucinations but also had parkinson's um, so you can see that there are these uh, tracks in the back here that um, were thinner in people with parkinson's hallucinations and in fact, these are connecting posterior brain regions from between hemispheres, so from the left to the right hemisphere. And we repeated exactly the same uh, process 18 months later, including uh, the brain imaging. And we found that um, even more changes developed. Um, so you can see now um, more, many more fiber tracks uh, show thinner fibers. And again, these were mostly in tracks con connecting posterior regions with um, the, the more uh, frontal connections towards the front of the brain being relatively preserved. So white matter fibers are thinner in people with Parkinson's with hallucinations compared to people without hallucinations. And this is correlated with the severity of the hallucinations um, in this population. And changes continue over time with more fibers becoming thinner. And we showed that these changes were mostly in the back of the brain and the more frontal connections were actually relatively unaffected. And this is interesting because because more frontal connections and connections uh, between more frontal with more posterior brain regions are actually uh, more likely to be involved in these top-down influences in perception in the prior knowledge. So having intact or relatively intact frontal connections may explain why people with hallucinations show this over-reliance in prior knowledge. So we looked at influences in visual perception and we looked at the underlying uh, brain wiring changes. But although looking at individual connections or white matter tracks is useful, since I just um, said that the whole brain is interconnected, we also wanted to look at the whole brain level as well. And to do this, we used a mathematical tool, which is called graph theory, and it visualizes networks using uh, graphs. And here I, have sh I show you a very famous graph, the London Underground Map. And the principle when drawing any graph is that each region, for example, here, different areas um, of London, is represented by a circle or a node in the graph. And if any two regions are connected, say there is a tube line uh, connecting them, then you draw a line. So instead of displaying these regions in terms of their physical distance, as in a normal map, we visualize them in terms of their connectivity. And this can be very powerful. So if, for example, you want to see uh, whether Russell Square um, and the Natural History Museums of South Kensington are connected, um, looking at a traditional map, this may be very difficult to work out. Um, you can still do it. You can track all the roads. You can put it on Google Maps. But um, when you first look at the map, they appear to be quite spatially distinct. So they're quite far away from each other. They don't appear to be straightforwardly connected. But if you look at the tube map, you can easily see that they're actually connected by a single line, the Piccadilly line. 
Also looking at the view map, you can see lots of useful information uh, that are not there on the traditional map. So, for example, Russell Square only has uh, one line passing through and only two direct connections, whilst other stations like King's Cross or Bank have a lot of lines uh, passing through and a lot of different direct connections. So if something was to happen, that would mean that the King's Cross station would have to close. It would have a much bigger impact on the whole of the network um, on travel around London than if something was to happen and Russell Square station had to close. And the same principle can be applied to the brain. And we did exactly that um, in the same group of 140 people um, as before. And what we did is that we used this diffusion-weighted imaging to derive or calculate the white matter fiber structs. And then we used uh, structural uh, MRI imaging to uh, divide the brain, the gray matter, into 379 distinct brain regions. And then for every pair of brain regions, if there is a white matter tract connecting them, we draw a line um, to form a graph and we repeat that process for all the 379 brain regions to form this um, similar underground map graph for the brain. And once we do that for every single person, we can compare these graphs across groups. And so we compared these graphs, um, brain graphs in people who had hallucinations compared to people with Parkinson's who didn't have hallucinations. And we found that there was a subnetwork of reduced connectivity strength in people with Parkinson's and visual hallucinations. And I have just visualized this here. So in this, um, each of the little circles is a brain region. And um, with the, the lines are the connections that are actually affected. And you can see that this is very diffuse across the brain. So a lot of regions are affected. Actually, more than 90 brain regions were affected, both in the left and the right hemisphere, both in the front and the back of the brain. So no wonder that when people try to look at the individual lesions and try to overlay them, that was unsuccessful. But most importantly, when we, once we know what the network changes are, we can better understand what effect losing connectivity between these regions may have on brain functions. Similarly to kind of trying to guess what would happen if a, if a tube station was to go down. And to do that, we have to go one step further. So I already told you that the brain can be thought of as a graph. So if we have a brain graph here, where each of the circles is a brain region and the lines are the connections between them, um, if this brain graph is not static, it's dynamic. So if the purple circles, the purple brain regions are active and the white ones are inactive, then this can be thought of as a state that the network can take. It's a specific brain state. This is a different brain state because different brain regions are active and different brain regions are inactive. And we can actually mathematically calculate the all the possible brain states that the network can go through, can take. And we also can calculate the energy that we need to spend to push our brains into different states. So if you imagine that you are sitting with your eyes closed, enjoying the sunshine, um, and you have to push your brain into a state where you're watching television or you're drinking a cup of tea, you don't need to activate a lot of brain regions to do that. So the amount of energy that um, needs to be applied to the brain is relatively small. So this is E3 and D4. But if you need to push in your brain into a state where you're reading a book or hearing my talk, or even most so playing chess, then you need to spend more energy because you need to activate more brain regions. So the energies are higher. 
And for any specific brain region, so for the grey one here, for example, in the brain, we can calculate the sum uh, of all the energies that need to be applied to that brain region to push the brain into all possible states. And this is called average controllability. And it's a metric of how much influence a brain region has over the whole of the brain network, and specifically how important that brain region is into pushing the brain into different states. So what we did next is we looked at this sub-network that we found that was affected in Parkinson's with hallucinations. And we found that within that sub-network, people who had hallucinations showed reduced controllability than non-hallucinators and people who didn't have Parkinson's. So the ability to switch the brain between states was reduced within this sub-network. We also found that um, these regions that are affected in Parkinson's with hallucinations, in healthy brains, so in our control group, were regions that um, normally have very high controllability. So here I have colored the brain in terms of each region's controllability. So with darker colors are regions that are more important for switching the brain into different states. So they have higher controllability. And you can maybe even visually perceive this, but we also tested this mathematically. But these regions that normally have high controllability were actually the regions that were affected in Parkinson's hallucinations. So people with Parkinson's and hallucinations show large-scale brain network changes, and these changes happen preferentially in areas that are important for switching the brain to different states. And this may explain why kind of hallucinations can happen, because there is a problem with switching the brain to different states. But why are these specific brain regions affected? What um, do they have that makes them more vulnerable? And one thing that could be making them more vulnerable is how they express different genes. So we know that although all of our cells in our bodies have the same genetic material, our cells express genes differently throughout the body, and the same is true for different brain regions. So we wanted to see whether there are any differences in gene expression in regions that are affected in Parkinson's with hallucinations compared to the regions that are intact. And to do this, ideally, we would measure gene expression from the actual brain regions that are affected in our 140 participants. But we cannot cut pieces of brains out from our participants because they still need their brains. So what we did is we used um, these atlases of gene expression of the human brain, specifically um, the Allen Institute for Brain Science Atlas. And what they did is they took uh, the brains of donors who had passed away from unrelated causes. So they didn't have any history of Parkinson's or neurological disease. And they took the whole of the brain at postmortem and did uh, brain imaging, MRI. And then they took very, very small one cubed uh, millimeter volume areas um, uh, from the brain. They took this little piece, uh, blended it together and did gene sequencing for thousands of genes. And they measured how much each of these genes was expressed in this area. And then they repeated the process for many different areas and um, they have actually marked them in, MR, in the MRI of the brains that they did. And so we have very useful information for thousands of genes. For a specific gene here, you, you know how much that gene is expressed across different brain regions. So here, for example, a specific gene with uh, blue are areas where that gene is highly expressed and red is areas where that gene is um, uh, expressed in low levels. 
And so we have this information for over 180 brain regions and more than 15,000 genes. And here I've just visually visualized this information uh, where the rows are different regions and the columns are different genes. And again, blue, higher expression, red, lower expression. So what we can do then, um, because we know these what these regions are, we can compare the gene expression of different genes in regions that are affected in Parkinson's with hallucinations, so regions that are in this subnetwork, compared to regions that are not. And this way we can identify genes that are higher or lower expressed in these regions. And once we do that, we can actually assess these genes in terms of what they do, what is their function. And when we did that, we actually found specific biological processes um, in that these genes were serving, specifically the regions that were affected in Parkinson's hallucinations, so the where in the subnetwork. So it reduced expression of genes related to mRNA metabolism and processing, and they showed increased expression more than other regions um, of genes related to protein targeting and localization. And this provides useful insights because we know that Parkinson's disease is caused by the accumulation of pathological proteins in the brain. So perhaps these regions, by expressing more genes that are related to protein localization, say to the membrane of the cell, might actually make them more vulnerable to the accumulation of these pathological proteins in the presence of Parkinson's. But we also know that changes in gene expression that we see may be due to different amount of cells being present in those regions. So if you imagine that this cell here is an oligodendrocyte, so a cell that's very important for the white matter, if you think that this expresses a lot of the red gene and a little bit of the blue gene and none of the green gene, and in the middle here you have a neuron which expresses a lot of the green gene, a little bit of the blue gene and none of the red gene, and lastly you have an astrocyte, a supportive cell that expresses a little bit of everything. If we sample two regions and we find these specific um, gene expression patterns, this may be actually due to the fact that region one has a lot of oligodendrocytes and region two has a lot of neurons. So we actually looked at whether these genes that were over and under expressed in the affected regions were associated with specific cell types. And indeed they were. So we found that these brain regions that were affected in hallucinations showed reduced expression of genes that were related to oligodendrocytes and increased expression of genes related to neurons, uh, so GABAergic and glutamatergic neurons. And this again provides us some useful insights because as I said, oligodendrocyte is a cell that is actually very important for the white matter health because it produces a sheath around the fiber that helps uh, white matter fibers to transmit information more quickly. So perhaps regions that are, these regions are vulnerable because they are normally less rich in oligodendrocytes. So in the presence of Parkinson's disease, they can lose connectivity. So areas of the hallucination subnetwork that were affected in Parkinson's with hallucinations show specific gene expression profiles, and these are associated with specific biological processes and cell types. Hopefully, I have convinced you by now that examining the brain as an network can provide really useful insight into the mechanisms of Parkinson's hallucinations at many different levels. Applying this approach, we now know that there is an imbalance of perceptual influences in people who hallucinate with an overweighting and over-reliance in prior knowledge. There are also changes in brain wiring, both when looking 
at um, sorry, both when looking at the level of the individual white matter uh, fibers and also at the level of the networks. Um, and the, these changes in brain structure affect regions that are important for switching the brain to different states. But although these brain regions that are affected are quite diffuse, they share specific genetic expression profiles, which may make them more vulnerable. So finally, linking structural brain changes to genetic profiles, we now have insights into the biological processes and cell, cell types that are implicated in Parkinson's with hallucinations. And this is really important for the 2 million people worldwide who live with Parkinson's disease, because visual hallucinations are distressing, they can be frightful, and they are associated with worse outcomes for people. And now, having a clear understanding of the underlying changes in brain structure and wiring at different levels, at the level of the fibers and at the level of the networks, and we also have a better understanding of how these changes evolve over time. This could help us identify changes earlier and potentially test possible treatments as well by uh, assessing whether they can prevent these changes in brain wiring from happening. It could also provide new therapeutic targets, for example, drugs that target the specific biological processes and cell types, um, such as um, uh, protein targeting or oligodendrocytes could be trialed in Parkinson's with hallucinations. I just want to thank all of our participants for their valuable time, my supervisors and collaborators, everyone at the Wild Lab, um, the DRC and UCL, um, my funders, Alzheimer's Research UK, and of course you for your attention. So if you have any questions, um, I'll try to answer them. Thank you. Thank you, Angelica. That was a fantastic talk and wonderful to see how you've brought together the brain and showed the importance of using thinking about the brain as a network. Um, and I particularly enjoyed um, your analogy with, about King's Cross. Um, so we've got um, a few questions coming in. Um, so um, I think you, you, you just sort of ended off by kind of teasing us about uh, thinking about treatments. So can you tell us what are the treatments for hallucinations? Are there any, are there any at the moment or are, are there any trials that um, people might be able to take part in? Yes, so that's a great question. So there are um, some treatments available, but they're mostly um, at the moment related to um, a category of drugs that's called antipsychotics. So they're mostly around um, a psychiatric kind of a variety of psychiatric symptoms, um, like um, one is called quetiapine. But there is also a lot of research into hallucinations, and actually there's a trial going on in the UK at the moment. Uh, it's called Top Hat, and um, we are recruiting here at UCL as well, that is trying to repurpose an old drug. Uh, it's actually an anti-sickness tablet, which is called Ondansetron, and it affects serotonin receptors in the brain. So we're trying to see whether that could have an effect on hallucinations as well. So um, there, there are some uh, trials happening, but still uh, early stages, I would say. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so another question that people, uh, saying this is really interesting and they'd actually like to take part. It sounds like there was quite interesting um, experiments that, that, uh, that we're doing. So are there any experiments that we're still doing that we can, uh, that we can take part in? Yes, definitely. So we are currently um, just starting a new experiment, trying to uh, better understand how hallucinations, which layers of the gray matter, because uh, the brain has is arranged in different layers. So we're trying to understand which specific layer is more important for hallucinations. And we are actually just going to start recruiting soon at UCL. So if ever, anyone um, is interesting, they can just email me. So my email um, should be on the on the Eventbrite, I think. And um, 
yes, really interesting. And we're also going to be recruiting uh, more uh, for Parkinson's disease patients as well. So yeah, but both for the Top Hat and the uh, Hallucinations Project, just get in touch. Brilliant. And I'm sure that we can um, make sure that your email is available. And of course, people can take part remotely from home. And yep. also um, when things calm down with the pandemic, then people can come in and have these um, very advanced scans. Um, there's a really nice question that's sort of personal about you. Um, so what drew you to Parkinson's research? Oh, gosh, that's really interesting. Um, that's great. So what I really like about it is that it's a very complex disease. It is not. Um, so when I originally was a medical student, I was reading about Parkinson's. It was actually all about the movement symptoms. But then once I started my training, um, it became even more clear that it, it affects kind of the whole body. And um, vision is also something that I was particularly interested in. And it's also linked to uh, kind of memory and thinking problems. It can affect the bladder. It's a truly a multi system disease and I think that is um, part of why it's so difficult in a sense to navigate in the clinical setting but I think it's also very challenging uh, and I, I felt that it is something that I found very kind of intellectually stimulating but I also would be able to make a difference because there are so many unanswered questions um, so yeah that's brilliant great so it's sort of balance of being sort of interesting but also you can make a difference so talking about making a difference um, it's very interesting work, but uh, this question is saying, well, I, I worry that, you know, network disruption, isn't that very abstract and sort of too mathematical? Can that actually help with developing new treatments? Um, yes, yeah, so that's an excellent point. I think um, it is abstract in conceptualizing it and it is comp very computational. So you have to, you rely a lot on your mathematical principles to draw conclusions. But at the same time, and I think having the tools now to link these um, changes with data from the molecular level, so gene expression data, um, or even, you know, there are a lot of um, atlases now with PET scans and different neurotransmitters. So you can actually, we now have the tools to link these more abstract um, concepts with actual um, data from the genetic, from the cell level, from the molecular level. And it can be a really useful tool to bring together um, kind of something that as hallucinations, it is more broad it kind of affects the whole brain but you can use it to to probe um in vivo um cells and and biological processes so i think by linking the two it becomes really powerful and it can hint at new treatments that then other researchers can actually take and test in the lab so i think it's really important for idea idea generating and kind of steering us towards one direction or the other Absolutely. And I might add to that, if I may, that a lot of the work that you've presented, which has used sort of thinking about the brain as a network and is fairly abstract and, seemed, and, and quite mathematical, but actually has provided new insights where we didn't have those insights. We, we didn't have those tools before. So actually, although it might seem like it's abstract, it's actually giving us new tools that, that, and it's the way to approach this problem. Um, but it's a great it's, it's a really important question to be asking and to make sure that we're constantly relevant. Um, so here's a very interesting question. Is there an overlap between multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's in terms of how we treat patients? Uh, in terms of how we treat patients, that's really interesting, actually. I've never thought of that directly before. Um, I guess the, the thinking behind this is that uh, multiple sclerosis affects the white matter. So, And I showed you a lot of white matter changes in Parkinson's. Um, 
of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that there is any particular, um, so the treatments that we have for Parkinson's and for multiple sclerosis are quite distinct. And I think that's probably fair because the biological, the underlying biological processes are also quite distinct. But it, in recent years, it has become much more clear that there are changes, say, in the immune system in Parkinson's disease as well. So it's definitely an area where more research is, is happening to see whether changes within the immune system that we, that, you know, happen in multiple sclerosis, whether they also have a role to play in Parkinson's. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an area that's definitely interesting and we have to have more research in. But I don't think at the moment the treatments are the same. Absolutely. So um, you've had a compliment uh, from uh, Trish O'Hare, who said, great lecture. And she's asking, um, are there any similar results with auditory hallucinations in Parkinson's? So not in Parkinson's specifically, but there has been research in auditory hallucinations in um, uh, psychiatric disorders. So in Parkinson's disease, actually, although you can have multimodal uh, hallucinations so across different modalities, um, they are primarily visual um, auditory hallucinations are not as common um, in psychiatric disorders uh, they're much much more common and there has been research looking at the different influences in perception and actually people with psychiatric disorders also who experience auditory hallucinations also show this overweighing of prior knowledge when vi viewing similar to tone uh, images they also have um, uh, some changes in, at the network level as people with Parkinson's disease do. But um, there, this hasn't been examined specifically in Parkinson's with auditory hallucination because they're not as common. So they are primarily visual. But there seem to be some similarities between visual and auditory hallucinations across different disorders. Great. So and then we have a question from Benjamin. Um, are, are visual symptoms associated with worse motor symptoms? And if not, why not? So how do motor symptoms relate? So if you've got Parkinson's, it's a movement disorder. How does that relate to the severity of visual hallucinations? So that's um, really interesting as well. So um, visual hallucinations specifically don't tend to be associated with the worst motor symptoms. They tend to be more associated with uh, symptoms related to cognition. So that we know that people who have visual hallucinations will actually go on to, will have a higher chance to develop uh, cognitive impairment and dementia, um, and but not necessarily um, worsening of movements. And the, although this hasn't kind of been fully validated, there seems to be a bit of different types of Parkinson's. So there are the people who have really bad motor symptoms and they tend to, to kind of progress in terms of their movements. Um, and there are people who tend to have more cognitive symptoms. And in those cases, we find, at least in our clinical practice, that um, as people start to develop hallucinations and problems with cognition, their movements actually become less of a problem. There is a, the cognition actually much more takes over the clinical picture. And so the, for the why not, that's an excellent question that I don't have an answer to. I think it's really interesting and we don't know. What we found that was really interesting in other studies that I haven't presented was that actually um, there seem to be different neurotransmitters at play. So when we think about motor symptoms, a lot of it is related to dopamine. And we found in a recent study that uh, changes that we see in people who have visual problems were actually not related with gene expression of dopamine transmitters. They were related with serotonin, noradrenergic, and um, 
get it called energetic transition. Um, so it seems that there are that they may be happening by different routes, um, but we don't know for sure yet. I hope that answers the question. Yes, I think I think that answers the question. Yes, and and great to hear the the sort of differences in the neurotransmitters as well that may be underlying some of that. So another question is, um, oh, again, another compliment. Thank you for presentation. It was really good. Um, this is from Pedro. Um, are there any treatments, and I, and I think we're talking about here about hallucinations, that are not specifically related to, to pharmacology, to, so specifically drug treatments for hallucinations? Um, so that's a great point. Um, not yet. Uh, there is some, uh, there was a very interesting study recently that um, uh, was trying to play on that concept of reduced contrast sensitivity. So they were trying to increase visual contrast sensitivity to make people kind of improve their visual perception. And there are um, studies in other, um, in hallucinations in other conditions. So um, in psychiatric disorders, for example, there's a lot of research into non-pharmacological interventions with um, talking therapies, but also kind of using augmented reliability and things like that. Um, this hasn't been yet applied to Parkinson's disease, but it would be, um, would be an interesting avenue for, for research, I think. And there's definitely route for uh, things like um, uh, brain stimulation that has also kind of become more um, widely used in recent years. And we also now have methods of simulating the brain um, non-interventionally using transcranial magnetic stimulation, so TMS. So that could also be something that could be trialed in Parkinson's with hallucinations. But we don't have very good targets for it yet, I think. We need to understand more about how they happen first. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, so, just a sort of another question from Trisha Hara, who's thanks for, for your answer from before, and and it's a very it's uh, she's kind of looking at the relationship between Parkinson's and hallucinations and dementia. So she's saying, will the person who lives with Parkinson's always develop Lewy body dementia, and are the hallucinations an early sign? Um, so not always, no. Um, so um, the different studies have given us different percentages. It varies quite a lot. Um, the risk of developing dementia when you have Parkinson's, um, we know it increases when you have hallucinations. It increases when you're older and it increases as for, you know, the longer you have the disease. So if you have Parkinson's for one year and if you have Parkinson's for 20 years, the risk is, is higher when you had it for longer. Um, but it's not... Um, it's not a definite and we know already as in as with I think that's really interesting and something that we don't necessarily think about always as clinicians is that there are things that we can do that may not necessarily affect the disease course but they can help the individual which is um uh, managing cardiovascular risk factors exercise um, managing your blood pressure uh, managing diabetes things that we know have an additive effect to the Parkinson's pathology in the brain, so vascular risk factors and, and diabetes and cholesterol, for example, we know now have an additive effect, so they make your Parkinson's progress more. So these are simple things that we can all do um, to help the, at the individual level, even if it doesn't necessarily change the progression of the disease. But not always, no. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. So I, I think... I think we'll, we'll probably wrap up, wrap up there because um, we've had some great, really interesting questions. Thank you for an absolutely uh, brilliant and enlightening talk and really showing us that when we think about the brain as a network, that it also can, can tell us something new about hallucinations. So I, 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 think, I, hope, I think it seems like people have been really interested, especially by the, the questions that we've had.
Um, so I also want to thank everybody for, for joining us today. We've had um, a great audience and sort of really um, stimulating questions from everybody. Um, you can see on the UCL Minds webpage some of the upcoming lectures, and um, I hope everybody um, stays well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Angelica. Thank right. you.